Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Tonight we have as a guest uh, Heron Stone, uh, the founder of Gendo, a way of language. Um, uh, we are actually going to be encouraging people to call in tonight as per Heron's request, and I've also uh, dragged one of my longtime panelists for V Radio along, and that would be Chibi. So, Chibi, go ahead and introduce yourself first. I know you love doing that every show. Hello, this is Chibi. <laughs> For those of you interested in learning more about Chibi, please feel free to visit my website, v-radio.org, um, wherein you will find archives, many of which happen to have Chibi uh, in them as a panelist. So, um, And that being said, I'm going to um, tell everybody, if this is your first time listening to V-Radio, uh, please visit my website, v-radio.org. Uh, there you will find uh, more uh, basically archives of shows like this one. Um, my must-see TV list with a list of free documentaries you can watch on the Internet. And if you like what you hear, please consider giving a donation. So that being said, um, I'm going to go ahead and bring my guest on. Um, Heron, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. Hi, I'm Heron. I take it you're trying to beat Chibi for <laughs> yeah I think I I think for, I did pretty well didn't for I? the the least amount of explanation yeah. yeah well I am the creator of Gendo a way of language and um, you know no I always like other people to introduce me it's always interesting to see what other people think I I'm up to well I can I can do it like a boxing ring announcer if you like oh whatever you got to do you know we're here. For a Good evening, and welcome to V Radio tonight. And in this corner, weighing in at however many pounds I don't know, we have Heron Stone. Stone. Yeah. <laughs> I echo the second part of it. Yeah. Uh, let's get ready to talk. Doesn't have <laughs> about linguistics. Uh, linguistics. <laughs> there we go. Because I, I said it like that, it's all you know, interesting. But anyway, yes, about linguistics. Um, so uh, that being said, uh, obviously uh, you – now I guess let's start first of all uh, with an explanation to my listeners um, as to why uh, your your name is spelled – actually everything is spelled with lowercase letters in the description for the show. And yeah, in, we didn't talk beforehand, and when I went there and I saw what you had done uh, – you know, I wanted you to change it <laughs> to the way I wanted it. And sure. I never use caps unless there's some possibility for confusion. Uh, I mean, sometimes, cap, you know, whether something is capped or not makes a difference. But unless there's some really good reason to capitalize a word. Actually, the only word I ever capitalize is earth. Mm -hmm. uh, other than that, uh, I don't use caps. I just they're pointless. They don't add anything. They're just you know extra work. Okay, so I just wanted to let everybody know. Uh, no, you know, despite the fact that yes, I am sick again, and yes, I do have a fever. Um, I wasn't intentionally using what would be commonly accepted as bad grammar. Um, it was a request of the guest in question that his name not be capitalized. Um, now I guess that kind of uh, moves into linguistics and.
Sorry about that, folks. A little piece of planned obsolescence there. I had a blue screen of death. <laughs> Those things that Microsoft claims doesn't happen anymore. Um, like, uh, first time in a long time that they've happened during a show. So I apologize to everybody who was listening. Um, but anyway, uh, that being said, uh, I said, I guess that segues into, you know, into what Gendo is and the reasons, you know, uh, for what got you started on that path. But I, I do want to ask, uh, you know, basically uh, the same question that I ask of all my guests, which is, uh, what got you started in, in thinking outside the box, um, you know, trying yeah. to wake people up? That's, that's, uh, that's a, a story I've told several times in my life. There, it, it all began with a girl with a really beautiful body in a really tiny bikini at the beach in 1967. I wasn't aware <laughs> this was going to be an R-rated uh, you know, action no, film. No, 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 it's not. It's, that's, that's as racy as it gets. Uh, but I lived in Manhattan Beach in California at the time, and I was 21, and I was interested in nothing but television, cars, and girls. That was basically the extent of my interests in life. And I went and I smoked. I smoked cigarettes at that time, and, and I lived close to the, the pier down in Manhattan Beach. And in the summertime, Manhattan Beach was just a great place for a young guy who was interested in girls to live. There, there were just all these beautiful uh girls walking around in bikinis all over the place in the summertime. And I walked down to the liquor store to get some cigarettes. And as I was walking into the front door from one side, from the other side, this girl was walking into the liquor store in the tiniest bikini and the most beautiful body I think I'd ever seen. And I was instantly sort of entranced. And I sort I was I just sort of found myself following her around in the store and looking at her. And she looked at me and gave me this dirty look. And then I realized, oh, I probably shouldn't be following her around and ogling her. And at that moment, uh, I was standing next to a used book rack. And so I reached over without looking at all. I just grabbed the first thing off this used book rack I could find and held it up in front of my face so I could pretend to be reading the book while I stared at her body. And the next thing I knew, I was up at the cash register with some guy asking me if I wanted anything else. And so basically, I'd sort of wandered around the store and found myself up at the cash register. There were two cash registers. She was at the other one, and I was at this one. And so I, I said, uh, give me a couple of packs of Luckies. And, and the book was in my hand. It was only 10 cents, so I bought it. And uh, they put him in a bag. And by that time, she'd gone out to the store, and I don't know what happened to her. But then I, I walked home, pulled the book out of the uh, the paper bag and threw it in the – I think I threw it in the trash can, but I missed and hit the floor. And uh, I had no intention of reading it. I'd never read anything in my whole life. Why would I read? There was television. So um, – Anyway, uh, sometime over the next couple weeks or months, I don't remember just when, I wasn't really the cleanest guy in the world. <laughs> you know, It was still on the floor a couple of weeks later. And I guess my TV must have broke or something. I, I, don't, I can't imagine what possessed me to start reading that book. But I did, and within a very short time of starting to read the book, I had the most earth-shaking experience of my life. And it, I realized 
in an instant. It's not, you know, the old idea, everything you know is wrong. Everybody's heard that statement. Well, it's one thing to understand that statement. You know, yes, everything I know is wrong. It's another thing to really get it. And I just had this earth-shaking realization that I really didn't know who I was, what I was doing here, what I could be doing here, what I should be doing here, what was good, what was bad, on and on and on. I realized that everything I thought I knew about me was just the story I'd been sold. And I never really recovered from that. <laughs> it short-circuited everything in my life. I was in college at the time. I don't remember what I was majoring in. and I, I didn't drop out of school, but... My whole emphasis on life changed. From that moment on, I, I was trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And that was what got me started. So what was the name of that book again? <laughs> well, I didn't say what it was. Mm -hmm. uh, the book was by Alan Watts. And mm -hmm. this was so funny is the title. The title is The Supreme Identity, an essay on Oriental Metaphysic and the Christian Religion. Just the kind of book I would have read if I had to pick a book, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and uh, yeah, and that was it. And I recently reread the book, actually, and it, I, I think it was a good book, but I don't I, I was looking for the because it happened to me in an instant. There was something he said in that book in, it, right at that moment in time just absolutely destroyed my whole basis for reality. And I was hoping to, to discover what that was again when I reread it, but uh, I have no idea. I don't know what it was, but something in there. Like I say, it happened within a second. I was sitting there reading, and all of a sudden, boom, it just overwhelmed me. Amazing. And I, I think I'm just the luckiest guy in the world to uh, to have had that experience. You know, otherwise I would have turned into a, you know, an American or something. I don't know. So basically, an epiphany. <laughs> That's uh, it's that's actually very powerful. Um, oh, it totally changed my life. Like I say, I was not the same person after that. That's what people mean by being born again, I guess. Now, uh, I guess then let's go ahead and get into to Gendo. Uh, what what brought about Gendo? Well, um, that book introduced me to Zen Buddhism. So for the next ten years, I, I mean, I read everything Alan Watts had ever written and everybody else that he mentions. And, you know, I mean, I, I became a student. I became a reader. I'd never, honestly, I'd, I think I'd read maybe two or three books in my whole life prior to that. I, that turned me into a reader. And um, after about 10 years of being on that path of meditation and the, this sort of Zen path, I came to another realization, which was the, the second uh, Satori, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I realized that after 10 years, I was really no closer to any answers to my questions than I was when I began 10 years earlier. I was a lot better at talking about it. You know, I mean, I'd read a lot of books. I'd learned a lot of things. But actually, deep down inside, nothing much had changed uh, in way of coming up to answers to any of the questions that I had. And that's when uh, a mentor, I had a mentor in college, a guy named uh, Mike Romanoff, who actually was a descendant of the Romanoff dynasty in Russia. <laughs> and, uh, but he was teaching geography at Cal State Dominguez Hills, and he and I became friends. Well, really, he was my teacher, and I was his student. 
And um, he suggested that I read Alfred Korzybski's book, Science and Sanity. This is 1975 or 76 or 77, something like that. And that book, well, my standard story is that Alan Watts got my spiritual virginity, Alfred Korzybski knocked me up, and Ray Kurzweil delivered the baby. (laughs) Wow. Reading Korzybski all of a sudden gave me this focus on language. Uh, I realized that everything I'd been doing for the previous 10 years consisted of activities in the domain of language. I was reading books. I was writing a lot. uh, I was going to lectures and listening, and I was giving uh, seminars and things on various subjects. So basically everything I did in these past 10 years to further my enlightenment or whatever it was I was seeking uh, consisted of activity in the domain of language. And Korzybski's Science and Sanity is a really serious analysis of some of the pitfalls of uh, using language to make sense out of things. Mm-hmm. And um, so what I got from Korzybski, it's a little hard to, to explain it, but what I realized was that I... I couldn't formulate any of the any of the questions that I'd been asking, the philosophical conundrums that had bothered me that I sought answers to. If I applied the principles of language that I learned in Korzybski, I found that that I I couldn't actually even formulate the questions meaningfully. When I'd write the questions out in regular English, they all made sense. Oh, what is the meaning of life? Or, you know, whatever they are. But when I started trying to eliminate the bullshit from the language and actually try to say something meaningful, I couldn't. And for a long time, I thought that was a shortcoming on my part, that I just wasn't clever enough to formulate these questions. But it finally dawned on me that the reason I couldn't formulate the questions is that there aren't any questions. That that the whole philosophical endeavor is a language game. And that, you know, if you want to play that game, it's it's great fun. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I just I finally came to the, the I guess the way to say it is that there are two ways to dispose of a nagging question. One is to find some sort of answer that satisfies you. And the other is to see that the question is not a question at all. It's just a sequence of phonemes that sounds like a question that, of course, could never be answered because it's not really a question at all. And and that was what finally sort of got me through the second stage was to realize that I didn't really have any philosophical questions that I could ask. And so I, 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 all the nagging stuff that had bothered me for all those 10 years before just evaporated, not because I found answers, but because I found that I couldn't even ask the question meaningfully. I so, see. Yeah. Well, um, so that led to you, I guess, uh, getting the whole Gendo thing together. Um, and now, did you do research over the course of formulating in it, or was it something that had kind of come after you had done a certain degree of studying and realized, hey, you know, Eureka, I, I need to, to formulate this? You no, know, this stuff sort of came together piece by piece. There was no Eureka moment. And I mean, there were there were Eureka moments, but... Gendo sort of a, gradually emerged over the years. Uh, I spent probably 30 years 
<clears throat> reading from four to eight hours every day. That was basically my life was research in in this these domains. Um, on my website, which is gendo g e n d o dot net, uh, there's a bibliography of the most important of the books you know that that led to whatever it is I've become. Uh, I mean, there's probably ten times that number of many books that I read, but the ones that really made a difference are all on that list. And um, Gendo emerged gradually over time. Again, it was really all for me. I mean, I, I had no intention of doing anything that I thought would be of any use to anybody else. It was purely a selfish endeavor. In the beginning, I was looking for enlightenment. And that was what I spent the first 10 years seeking. And then once I read Korzybski and realized that I couldn't even ask the question anymore. Mm. Actually, I, I came to a, a sort of feeling that the, that seeking enlightenment was really a, a form of um, selfish, you know, self-absorption, actually. It's like a musician who sits in his room and practices all day long, but never goes out and plays any music for anybody. You know, I mean, he may not be as good as he could get. Yes, maybe he could stay in his room and practice and get even better, but what's the point if you're not going to go out and give a concert once in a while, you know? Right. And that's sort of how I began to feel that I've spent all this time sitting around studying so that I could be more enlightened. And I realized, you know, there's probably a lot of work that can be done that don't require me to be any more enlightened than I am right now. And so that was that was a big change, and this all sort of came along with the Korzybski thing, uh, that that I began to see that these problems with language were universal, and that everybody basically what it gets down to is is, and I was I still sort of stand by this, even though it seems like an outrageous statement, but that probably ninety eight percent of people, ninety eight percent of the time, live in a linguistically induced hypnotic trance. Uh, a trance induced by their own language machine, the voice in their head that people, first of all, they think that voice is who they are. They're identified with the talk that goes on in their head all day long, and they believe everything they hear it say, and they think they know what reality really is. And this is a form of insanity, as far as I can see. And it, and it permeates the entire world. And it struck me that it's all relatively easy to see through, actually. I mean, there's nothing in Gendo that a 10-year-old kid couldn't figure out or couldn't understand and apply. Uh, it's more difficult for adults because they, they're under the, uh, under the spell and have been under the spell. And of course, adults have a big investment in their ego and, and the fact that they actually think they know what's going on. And uh, so anyway, I began thinking about how how you know how this could make a difference and i'm still trying to figure that out how to how to bring gendo into the world in a in a way that can actually benefit people i haven't quite figured it out yet but i i think i'm getting closer well let's talk about um some of the aspects of it um like i i remember hearing you discuss the the five stupidities on a regular basis so um share those with the audience well <laughs> the five stupidities of English. Actually, if you go to iTunes uh, and search for Gendo, a way of language, uh, I have uh, about 600 podcasts there. Number 358 
is uh, a good explanation of the five stupidities of English. It turns out that, um, well, maybe we'll just play a little game here. Uh, I start off that podcast with this story, and I think you probably are you have you heard the five stupidities, Neil? No, I haven't. Okay. Well, good. Then you may or may not know this story. I would ask you not to blurt out the answer if you know it. Um, it's, it's a real short little story. A man and his son were driving home from a soccer game one Saturday afternoon, and they were involved in a head-on collision. The father was killed instantly. The son was taken to a nearby hospital in critical condition. They wheeled him up into the operating room. The surgeon walked in, took one look at the boy, and said... I can't operate on him. That's my son. So, there's the story. Hmm. Have you heard that before? No. Okay, so that there's some apparent contradiction there, I assume. Yeah, well, yes, of course. Of course. It, yeah, yeah, obviously. But see, what I want to tell you is that there's no paradox at all here. The problem is, I used my words very carefully... And one of the words I used is carrying an unconscious assumption with it that you have bought into without knowing it. And as long as this assumption remains unconscious and active, this story appears to be paradoxical. When I tell you the answer, you're going to feel stupid. <laughs> but that's okay. I've told this story to thousands of people over the years, and not one person has ever gotten it. In fact, a lot of people say, you know, I heard this story 20 years ago, and I now I'm trapped again by it. It's a great little story, and it really makes a point about the, the power of an unconscious assumption to inhibit any kind of rational thinking. So if you, if you approach this rationally, we can look at it this way. People usually have two parents, one male, one female. Mm-hmm. If the male is dead, then who is the surgeon? Uh. uh <laughs> okay, no, it, it, I'm trying to wrap my head around that, but go yeah. ahead and elaborate. Yeah, well, the mother is, mm -hmm. is the surgeon. It's quite right. obvious. It's the simplest, most obvious, logical. People have two parents, one male, one female, male dead, therefore the surgeon is the mother. No problem. But the problem is the word surgeon for almost everybody, well, everyone I've ever told this story to, is the minute that you use the word surgeon, they see a man walking into that operating room. And that unconscious assumption coded with the word in the word surgeon and in the culture and everything, uh, the fact that it remains unconscious and unquestionable is where the problem is. Then people come up with all, you know, instant reincarnation, or, or actually the father in the car was a priest, uh, or, you know, or some, you know, people come up with every weird explanation in the world except uh, the most obvious and logical and only sensible solution is that the surgeon was his mother. That's, you know. But, right. uh, but again, the, the danger here is an unconscious assumption that language well, and in this case, it's more than just language that, that creates that unconscious assumption. But again, it's a more general idea about an unconscious assumption interfering with our ability to think reasonably. So does that make sense? Yeah, no, that actually makes great sense. And, um, you know, when you when you put it all together like that, it, um, in particular, I would say that that, that definitely got, does teach a lesson about a lot of assumptions that people make um, 
Jacques Fresco suggests that people read, uh, what was it, The Tyranny of Words. Right. Well, he also suggests Science and Sanity, Korzynski. Right. Right. And um, it it discusses just the way that we we have words that have so many social meanings uh, for us. Like uh, the example used in the book was communism. Uh, Oh, yeah. It immediately conjures up like, oh, uh, fascism. It conjures up gulags. It conjures up. You know, any number of other things that may have absolutely nothing to do with any communist you may meet, um, you know, yes. but it's it's got all of these uh, wrap ups in it, yeah. these different. Hang-ups. Well, those are one, one of the things that I deal with in the five stupidities, which is what I talk about is reification, the treating of abstract words as though they are concrete things. When, when they're in fact not communism is a reification. There's no such thing as communism. Communism is a word that means all sorts of things, depending upon who you're talking to at at a given time and what they mean by that word at that moment. But nowhere is there a thing. To me, a word, a thing is something you can put in a bucket. You know, and if we have a disagreement about a thing, like my pen here, well, we can put the pen down on the table in front of us, and we can measure it and weigh it and look at it. And if you and I have a disagreement about the nature of this pen, we can probably solve it by recourse to the object in front of us. But that just completely fails in the uh, in the domain of reification. Words like love, dignity, happiness, freedom, uh, integrity, honor. Love, you know, all those. There is no such thing as love, in the same sense that there is such a thing as my pen. And um, so those words are those, those are those are called reifications, and they create and just and that's primarily what uh, Chase's book is about, is how those words interfere with our ability. I mean, people just end up arguing over words, and it goes on and on and on, year in and year out, and, and to know. And there's no solution because there's no place where you can go to solve the problem, you know, to, to uh, resolve the dispute. No, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and I'd have to say that in particular, like words like love, for example, are so culturally based. You know, what love means in one culture means something entirely different to what it means in another culture. Uh, it could also just be about your own personal experiences yeah. with the word you know sure. yeah yeah it it, it, it yeah again it, it means whatever you mean by it at that moment and there's nothing wrong with that that's fine but uh you know there's just no such thing as love yeah and period especially when you look at it in other languages like the word aloha in hawaii has like what six different meanings and uh, a lot of japanese words for example uh same word pronounced slightly differently or with a different enunciation means something entirely different, which is why Japanese yeah. is so hard to learn. Um, yeah. You know, it's not just the word, it's how I said it in what context I said it even. Um, and that's, these are all the difficulties of the reasons, you know, when people ask, you know, why does Jacques Fresco, you know, suggest the possibility of a, of one language that we can all agree on that has none of these nuances and why would anybody want to do that? It's not a matter of, controlling things it's a matter of you know being able to effectively communicate with each other well the problem is again that people are unaware of these issues once someone is aware of them you can deal with them quite easily you know it's just understanding that in a conversation if you and i are trying to solve a problem and deal with some issue uh that we may have a couple terms that we may have to talk about and decide what we're going to mean if we're going to use those words and it's pretty easy to uh 
to do that. You know, absolutely. It, it, it but it, but it does take a, an awareness of the fact that this is a problem, and it's not that hard to become aware of it once you see it. I say children pick up on this stuff immediately because they can use it against their parents and teachers. <laughs> you know, but adults don't like it because it calls their own authority into question because they know they're full of shit, but they've been getting by for years, and now all of a sudden people can start calling them on it, and they don't like that. <laughs> right, right. Um, I know you uh, you wanted to take callers, and there was a caller who wants to be added, so I'm going to go ahead and add them now. Um, sure. And uh, that's a caller from the 631 area code. You're on the air. Welcome to V-Radio. How you doing? Glad to be here. Um, yeah, I, I definitely uh, remember the um, the joke, you know, with the surgeon from a long time ago. Ah, yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, I saw that in the 70s. It was on Archie Bunker. and you know. Oh, really? Some, yeah, yeah. If you look oh. at some of the episodes, it, it, it is on the episode of, uh, because, you know, he's, like portrayed as a bigot, you know, and a racist, <laughs> you know, and you know they're always trying to show him up, you know. Yeah. Norman Lear caught a lot of flack for that because you know he was portraying basically the 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 normal America. American. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So they didn't want to see yeah. their their uh, themselves, and um. Well, you not know, portrayed uh, like that anyway. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But you yeah. know, the truth actually, it's it's brutal. The truth is is not something that's really welcomed, and uh, especially by Americans. You know, and and you know, I'm a yeah. natural American. But um, with uh, also that I noticed from the '70s, the conditioning that went even further because uh, <laughs> I used to uh, talk with a lot of people about it and stuff was not only that is it a is it a male that you look at as the doctor or the policeman or the pilot. But when a person closes their eyes, they visualize a white male. Well, so of course. It, you know, yes. and, and, and they uh, they did the test with the black doll and the white doll, and, and the little black girl would, would actually pick the white doll. Of and, course. Um, you know, I think, I think it has a lot to do with conditioning because uh, the the whole atmosphere of, you know, centuries and history books and, you know, oh, yeah. uh, I heard a, a black a girl saying once at a PTA meeting and and it opened my eyes she was she was very angry and she was saying that uh this history book that people call a history book is basically a white power manual so you know <laughs> I, I was kind of like wow you know yeah. so as i looked yeah. into it i, I analyzed, and i said you know something she's right yeah. you, you know i'm Absolutely. not into uh you know racism against any person but um i was like you know the truth is the truth because as yeah. I look through it, yeah. So it it, it well, really they just ignore um, everybody else. Yeah, it's it's just the story of uh, the white landed uh, rich people. Exactly, and and Tim Wise gives a good point of how uh, it is. It, it's a group. It, it it a club. You know, it's basically a club. Yeah. And um, you know, poor white Americans will notice. You know, because they're poor, and they'll say, "Man, you know, it's, you know, we got a lot of rich people here." And they'll fall into the of the illusion of thinking it's it, it's maybe not racism by saying, "Well, I'm poor and I'm white," but when you look at it, it's such a it's such a mentally conditioning game because in America, at the lower levels, it's divide and conquer. Blacks and whites are not supposed to be together. It's supposed to be very sectioned. But if you go to Latin America or more likely South America, 
it's very integrated at the low lower economic yeah yeah but the <clears throat> higher level there is no integration it's it's mm. practically all white uh latin people that are running stuff as the difference in america you will see certain black figures in in top uh political um well, that's slowly beginning to change all over the world these things are slowly fading but it's, we're a long way from there yet yeah it's a whole you know i've always wanted to tell that surgeon story to a group of female surgeons <laughs> and see to see if any of them fall for it i've they, never I, had a female surgeon in the audience when i've used it but <laughs> they might or they might not i i was looking at some of your stuff on the moon and and it really uh you really got a lot of good stuff, man. I mean, the uh, a lot of people don't realize that that the months, you know, they come from moons, and there yeah. aren't uh, twelve in a year, you know. No, the, no, the whole idea of uh, of months is uh, is silly. It has nothing to do with the actual universe that we live in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's crazy. I like that and the phonetics that you uh, were going into. You know, uh, I have another friend. He he kind of went into the phonetics where. He would tell me like chemicals, you know, like chemicals, and I yeah. and I was wow, you know, I, I kind of didn't uh, really catch that, you know, until he brought it to my attention. I said, yeah, chemicals, you know, it, it really <laughs> makes uh, yeah sense, you know. So just looking, thinking, I, I I really think it goes back to thinking because it's discouraged uh, in school under the disguise of it's not discouraged. And 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 that's the real danger because if it was blatantly discouraged and people knew it, they would say, "Oh, school, you know, it's it's messed up." But it's a disguise of thinking that when you go to school, you you get educated or you learn actually. And and, and Einstein made a good quote by saying, "The only thing that interferes with his learning is his education." Yeah, and yeah, that's one of the things is that we're not taught how. I ask people this often: Where did you learn how to think? Who taught you how to think? And everybody says, "Oh, well, I, I just know how to think." Everybody, you know, it's just some sort of natural thing. You know, we just know how to think. But you know, I actually had to learn how to think. It took me a long time to learn how to think. And most people uh, have never even asked the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely have it. I, I mean. I am into a lot of self-schooling and teaching others, and a lady wrote a book called The Teenage Liberation Handbook, How to Quit School and Get a Real Life in Education. And when oh, I saw cool. the title, I mean, I was like, you know what, here's you know, my, my $20, I'll help support it. And she made a good point of how learning, people think, oh, well, you have to go to school, you know, how do you teach a kid to read, this and that, you know, they won't learn it on their own. And she said, we learn how to walk and talk on our own, and that is way harder than anything else in life. And and we get persistent at it, and we learn. We fall, we get up, and to to not give the child credit as far as reading and stuff is really diminishing. And that's where I notice the dumbing down starts. It starts with not letting the kid understand reality, like fire and sharp tools and hot water not to say you should just let them play with those things but if they there's a there's a natural learning within us that we start to understand and it's definitely inhibited by by schools it's inhibited by uh automaton like society and uh you you know yeah you you really i'm glad that's our job man that's what we got to do is change all that yeah, exactly. that's what I tell people. If you want to change it, there's no 
uh, oh, they're controlling us. I tell them, you're allowing people no, to you control. allow them to con- – yeah, nobody's controlling anybody. You know, you allow it. Yeah. Yep. In many cases, it. people are raised to believe that there's no other option, that, you know, yeah. well, wait a minute, you mean you mean I don't I don't have to be controlled? You know, a, a lot of this stuff kind of reminds me of a, the film Dead Poets Society. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Uh, Robin okay. Williams, mm-hmm. uh, where he's a very unorthodox teacher who goes to a private school and, and gasps, you know, teaches – Independent thinking. Um, I, I think the uh, the argument between him and the headmaster of the school, you know, he's like, well, aren't we supposed to be teaching these people to think for themselves? And and the headmaster looks at him and is like, what? Are you crazy? No, absolutely not. You know. Oh yeah. Like, oh, it, it's like, that's very surprising thing. that anybody would be uh, conscious enough to even answer that way. Usually, they everyone pays lip service. Of course, we're here to teach people how to think. <laughs> but oh, then, yeah. what do they oh, do? Yeah, I let teenagers know that when they want to quit school or something and and I get a lot of problems with adults I've been I've been cut off from free speech uh radio on FM and stuff like that when I call in and I tell them look uh you can quit school you know you you'll have to probably get your GED to satisfy your parents but also become an apprentice with either carpentry mechanics or something that you need to, to learn keep. something there's some sellable skill exactly <laughs> yes. and and what I let them know is that to formulate questions to battle adults because we aren't really, you know, a lot of us, we're just uh, automatic. We're on autopilot. So I tell kids that are 15, I say, okay, you tell them, look, when you were five years old, gas was $1.71 a gallon. Now you tell an adult, well, that's 30. What, were you sleeping for 10 years? You, you know, how did you allow the world to get into this state? I'm 15 years old. And now you're going to tell me that I need to go to school, I need to do this, as if you're an authority or you're a thinking person. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're, you you got your head in an ostrich hole, and you're trying yeah. to tell me, you know, and, and kids are bred. Well, kids not, don't have, uh, yeah, they, they don't have that, that takes a lot of guts to, to say that, you know. Yeah, well, well, guts on top of it, you know, they might have that, but they don't have, they won't be able to formulate that type of response or that yeah. type of yeah. Debate with yeah, they don't need to think that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so right. they, they really need. Well, that's help. where the hope is. Is that's why we need to get to the kids and help them because they're the ones that are going to change the world. It's too early. Basically, my sense is anybody over the age of about twenty-five is pretty much brain dead. They're <laughs> they're not gonna they're not really gonna change. You know, yeah. I mean, some of them will, but but for the most part, they aren't. And the way it's really going to happen. Is um, is by us assisting the, the next generations of kids, mm-hmm. um, you yeah. know, to do it. Yeah, without a doubt. The the the, uh, the older I like teaching the adult classes when I get with adults and go to colleges and stuff, and uh, they won't let me in the classroom. But I talk to a lot of grads on campus, and uh, I let them know. You know, I let them know all the time. It's like that degree. Uh, you know, they have masters and bachelors. And I said, it really means nothing. I said, if you have a medical degree and you can put somebody together, okay. But you still have to think freely, you know, because you're going to be, you know, have pharmaceutical companies trying to uh, turn you into a prostitute and a a drug dealer. And a lot of doctors do become that because um, I'll ask them. I'll say, hey, you know, have you read the side effects on this on this medicine? It says, you know, could cause suicidal tendencies. Well, listen, you know, the, even the word side effects is bullshit. They're effects. There are no side effects. This yeah, is one of the things that bugs me all the, 
you know, they, they say, oh, well, these are just side effects. No, no, those are effects. Along with the other effects that you want, there are all the effects you don't that is want. Really? I didn't, you know, I'm, thank you for that. I, yeah, it is. It's effect. <laughs> side effect is lessening the truth. Yeah, yeah. Oh, these are just side effects. Don't don't worry about these. These are just the side effects. That <laughs> is a yeah. really. I'm going to have to use that because when I when I talk in the hospital to some of them, their automatic response I realize now from the pharmaceuticals is you have to weigh the problem with the side effects well, and this and that. And I true. tell them, I say, well, okay, if the if the problem is pain, then the patient should be or or might need to take the pain because you're you're showing me one of the effects over here is suicidal episodes well that's the thing is you need to know what all the possibilities are and then make an informed choice you know mm -hmm. about whether you're willing to pay that price for it listen what's your name uh my name is sid i'm i'm in the chat room as cool veg because i had some videos on youtube as that but my name is sid prince and you know yeah well what i was going to suggest you're on you got in here through skype right uh no i actually just called for my i I added him via the uh the uh the the soundboard thing they give you for blog talk. Ah, okay. I was going to say uh, if you've been to my website. Well, anyway, my my uh, I would suggest you give me a contact sometime on uh, on Skype and let's talk about uh, what you're doing and what I'm doing and maybe there's uh, some way we can collaborate on something. I, I I'm always interested in talking to people who are out in the community doing stuff. Yeah, uh, I've I've got some things that you might find helpful, and maybe you'll have some things that I might find helpful. So um, yeah, definitely. I, I, think... I um, I, well, I, I have your website page up still. It's um, it has the imaginary landscapes, the uh, yeah, the graphics, yeah, agenda. But I don't see anything to send an email on here. That, well, don't... it's on, it's in there in various places. But uh, my my uh, email is just heron at gendo dot net, so you can get a hold of me that way. Okay, so yeah, I'll send something. And just yeah. in case, you know, I'm on. If you if you Google Cool Veg, a bunch of stuff will come up from years ago okay. when I just you know I used to make random videos, and I do yeah. make stuff with home. Uh, a a cell, I like to call it more self schooling because homeschooling in America. They have a very large religion. Yeah, they've already got their little niche. Yeah, and I don't uh, want to yeah. be You're right. Self-schooling is a better term, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, I, I just let them know it's more free-thinking individuals, um, you know, all different levels, all, all, you know, sort of going with the flow and being open to change because, uh, you know, I always use the saying that we, you know, at any moment we, we, we should be able to leave what we are right now um, to become something more, so don't yeah. stay in that in that rut of of where we think we are. Say, okay, I'll I'll, I'll shed. <laughs> I'm shedding, going through the yeah. now constantly. So there's no <laughs> I'm this, I'm yeah. that. You know, it, it's just a label. It, it's basically yeah. label. You know, if you're a mechanic, if you're a carpenter, if if you're a uh, plumber, you're really all three. And then you can still become more. You can say, well, I'm a writer too. I'm 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 a lecturer. I'm a video producer um and plus i still you know can pull an engine from a car and you know work yeah, on it so yeah. hey, tell me your name again i, I actually already sid, forgot it sid prince sid, uh, i'm on facebook right. as sid, sid v okay. prince yeah All right but sid, um yeah listen, we will definitely listen, connect sid. and i thank you yeah, guys because, yeah yeah it's right. clear that you can talk for days on end just like yeah i, I mean can. And that's why i make the videos i made the yeah. videos years ago because well, i i didn't listen, want to let me, let me just interrupt you man uh you and i should talk sometime offline here this isn't the time for us mm -hmm. to have this conversation so okay. 
I'm glad you called in and we and we got made some contact here. But um, this show is about me. <laughs> yeah, I've already told you the last time you called in. You know, we we need to have a V Radio show where you, where you come on to talk about the stuff you want to yeah. do, so that we and can you know, just you know, let funny, you go. I called in the last time. I forgot to leave my 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 info and stuff. So I said, you know what? I got to call back. I wasn't going to call back, but when I saw the email <laughs> to the show, it, it seemed pretty interesting because I'm really into language. You know. Well, go yeah. ahead and, uh, and be sure to tune in. And also, if you want to get a hold of me, the best way to do it is to go to my website, v-radio.org. All the contact information is there. So okay, yeah, so, I, all, all right, I'll, I'll check it out and and I'll listen to the rest of the show. And I thank you guys for taking the call. All right, thanks, Sid. All, all right. right, you're welcome. Bye. Okay, well, um, um, anyway, so as I was saying, um, now the the story that you told earlier, how does that relate to the five stupidities? Which story is this? Oh, the the the, uh, the, the surgeon. surgeon story. Yeah. Um, well, it, the, that's a lead-in to the idea that we have unconscious assumptions, okay, and that unconscious assumptions are really a bad idea. It's it's impossible to avoid assumptions. I mean, we're stuck with assumptions. So the only thing we can do is try to be conscious of the assumptions that we're operating on and then decide whether or not they make any sense. And, and so then the five stupidities, each of there are five very specific either words or types of words that carry erroneous, unconscious assumptions with them. And so that's why how that relates to it. Uh, the five stupidities concern uh, actually the, the, the first and most important of all of the five stupidities is the word the. And I'm not going to actually go into that this evening because I would challenge people to tell me or to think about it. What is so bad about the word the? What is, what is the unconscious assumption that goes along with that word? Uh, and then there's dualism, forcing the world into two mutually exclusive opposites when that's actually a, uh, an aspect of of the analysis, not an aspect of the world. Uh, and then, um, so there's dualism, absolutism, the words like all, never, always, every, uh, which is almost always wrong. Uh, there are some cases once in a while, they're usually trivial, where you can actually apply an absolute. And then reification, uh, which I touched on earlier, is the fourth one. And the last one is the use of uh, basically the verb to be, and it has to do with the concept of identity. And that one is sort of tricky. When I'm talk talking with kids and trying to explain this, I usually ignore the fifth stupidity because it, it's, uh, it requires some exploration. It's not an easy one. But the first four, the word the dualism, absolutism, and reification, any 10-year-old can get those instantly. They're just so obvious that they're almost always wrong. So it's really about us kind of getting a sensitivity to these specific structures in language so that you hear them when other people use them against you. And, and, th and this gets to why I, why I called it Dendo and, and the whole way I've approached this. You know, within... 10 miles of where I live right now, there must be at least 20 karate or taekwondo or various dojos where you can learn to defend yourself against getting beat up physically. But uh, we are under attack in the domain of language all the time by advertisers, 
by neighbors, by bosses, by lovers, by children, by parents, everybody trying to get us to do what they want us to do. And um, and most of us are just simply unaware of how these things go on. So Gendo uh, sort of took shape as a kind of self-defense in the domain of language. But what you realize in Gendo, the opponent is not usually somebody else. The opponent is your own language machine, is your own internal monologue. That's where the problem is. The problem is in the uh, the self-talk, the, the that continuous monologue that's going on inside of our head uh, that we become identified with and believe to be the way it really is. Um, so, But in Gendo, you start by listening to other people. The, the thing is to pick somebody like, you know, Rush Limbaugh or what's his name, Beck, Glenn Beck, or or any politician or any Christian preacher or, you know, almost anybody who's who's trying to, you know, sell something. And, and to use them as uh, as a place to try out these things because it's easy to hear them violating all these principles. Uh, but after a little bit of time of doing that in a sort of rigorous manner where you listen just for the word the in somebody's speaking or just for absolutism or reification, uh, after a while, as you get good at spotting it in other people, you begin to hear these words coming out of your own mouth. And that's when you you really begin to make some progress, is when you hear just how full of shit you really are. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually, that's excellent. And um, it, it moves in line with some of the reasons I'm making the troll film. It's just, there, and it's not just about trolls. In many cases, you know, people don't realize that they're using these different ways of manipulating people. Uh, well, they don't get, think of themselves as trolls. Right. They think that they think they're actually trying to be helpful. <laughs> right. Sort of. Anyway, sometimes. No, I agree. And it's it, in many cases it's it's a psychological game, or you know, or the term play on words, or semantics, or any number of different ways that people try to muddy up a conversation. Um, and, and and some of that is language, and some of it is just ignoring language, or, or even worse, no, like it's all uh, language. No, listen, it's all language because that's all they have. Mm-hmm. When you get a person in a in a chat room or in a, a text, you know, I mean, a text or, or a voice communication, that's all there is is language. That's you know, I mean, they have attitudes that are. I mean, their all their motivation and everything isn't coming strictly from that. But the only way they have of expressing it is uh, either typing or talking. Right. No, I, I get where you're coming from there, uh, and I think that uh, in particular. You know, as you were saying, it's a means of defending yourself. I usually suggest that people check out the logical fallacies for that reason, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, to be sure that not only that they're not doing it, but that someone else isn't trying to do it to them. Uh, well, you know, my sense, let me let me talk a little bit about the, the, fa- the sure, you know, go ahead. logical fallacies, because uh, those are all really good. But they are, like, way too much for most people. And, and they're unnecessary in the sense that the five stupidities, the word the will get you way further. <laughs> just one little word. If you just notice the way they use the word the, 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 the logical fallacies really hinge on reification and the word the. the well, and absolutism and dualism. But those, those 
I mean, there are, what, 20 or 30 logical fallacies? There's a whole bunch of them, you know, and some of them are very picky and identifying just which fallacy it is and being up on that. That requires a certain kind of intellectual effort on the part of a person to study and become familiar with those. Whereas things like the word the and reification will chop those arguments to shreds without ever even looking at logical fallacies. So it's just a lot easier to do unless you're of the the kind of mental uh, ilk that that goes towards learning those kinds of you know detailed uh, analysis of text. So you know for for the right people, learning the logical fallacies is really a good thing. But I suspect, in fact, most people won't even see the you know won't even get involved in Gendo, let alone the logical fallacies. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I realized when we were making the film that I was going to have to, you know, use like cartoons or or something to try to help people even understand that what they're doing is wrong when they do something like I'm losing this argument. Uh let me call the other guy fat, you know. <laughs> there you go. You know, they they don't even get, you know, that that's wrong and and they're taught that in school. You know, as I I was talking to Stefan Molyneux about that in the last show. You know, you're taught that in school that, you know, if 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 first you don't succeed, just just make fun of the guy. You know, yeah, yeah. they they don't even understand how that's not acceptable. And and worse is the average person reading it. Even the smart ones will still react as though, oh well, gee, he he's making fun of that guy. I I don't know if I want to be associated with someone who's being made fun of. So I, I guess I well, better side with the bully. Not want to be uh, associated with someone who's making fun of people, though. Too, it works both ways. You know, for, for right. I, mean, I mean, you don't have to understand ad hominem to to know that's bullshit. You don't have to know mm-hmm. the term or anything else, really. You know, some I mean, a lot of people know that. You know, they know that's not really the issue. You know, but you're right. Yeah, if you if you're well, yeah. What can I say? You're right. <laughs> it's even more astounding though how many of these people should know better and still don't react. Like they, it doesn't, you know, and you yeah. see it in modern politics all the time. The mudslinging, oh, yeah. you know. Oh man, well, the whole idea of arguing is pointless. I mean, that's the whole point: is the fact that they put themselves in a situation where they're arguing mm-hmm. uh, points is is a, a measure already of how ridiculous they are. Right. There's no point. No, I mean, I, I, I get accused of all sorts of things because I won't argue with people. You know, they say I, I don't want to hear points of view that are different than mine. But no, it's just I don't want to argue with you about it. If we can sit down on the on the same side of the table instead of opposite sides of the table and explore an issue, not as an argument, but as an exploration, that's fun. But to sit here and for me to argue a point with you is a complete and utter waste of time. Oh, I completely understand where you're coming from with that, and you can usually kind of get a sense when you're talking to somebody. Like, okay, oh, you can I've, tell right away. Yeah, I, I've reached the limit of of being able to actually exchange with this person, and now their ego is engaged. So now, I need to win, quote unquote, win. You know, yeah. being right is, is secondary at that point. I mean, I, you know, it's my ego. It's a, you know, it, it's at stake here, and that keeps bringing me back to you know. Get you know once again in school you know you get made fun of you don't want to look wrong because then all the kids in the classroom laugh at you you know well that's why you don't even get involved in arguments to begin with mm-hmm. see I don't even talk with people and uh, unless I've already got some sort of sense that 
that we're going to have a conversation as opposed to an argument. And and it, it takes me about five seconds to make that determination usually. Sometimes I'm wrong, but not often. And once you get sort of sensitized to that, it's about a person's attitude. And, there's, and it's just real clear that there's just no point in even beginning the conversation with a lot of people because they're just – they just want to argue, you know, yeah, or they've right. got, or they've got a point of view that they think is the way it really is. And if you have a different point of view, then you're obviously wrong. And there's just no point in, in engaging in a conversation with somebody like that. It's not going to be enlightening for anybody, unless you want to use it as an instance of, of showing what a jerk they are. And you can do that, but you know, that's not fun. <laughs> that well, no, I, and I agree with that. And, <laughs> but those exchanges you're talking about, for example, like, you know, there were people who asked me, you know, why are you having Stefan Molyneux on your show? I'm like, you know, because he's a free market advocate and all that. I'm like, we're not going to be talking about that. He's like, okay, well, still, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, still, you know, yourself. My my point is, is that he and I uh, respect each other enough to be able to exchange and not to have a conversation. Yeah, yes. <laughs> or agree to disagree or, you know, yeah. or not think less of you for thinking you know differently than i do um and that's actually i think what's one of the at the core issue of language and the ability to exchange is a, and particularly the things that end up messing it up you know when we go back to the human ego is that i can't accept that this person thinks differently than me especially publicly so therefore it is now my job to browbeat that person into going along with me you know, yeah. even if I have to use logical fallacies to get there, because that somehow just ain't gonna work. Yeah, I'm so insecure that this person needs to think the same way that I do. And if he doesn't, I'll even go so far as to start mentally abusing him until he comes around. Um, and of course, the, he's not going to come around if you do that either. Well, so yeah, but, that's the other thing is it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, he either doesn't come around in that he's going to be stubborn and dig his heels into the sand even more, or he's not yeah. going to come around in that he might submit to you. Because he doesn't want you to abuse him anymore, but that doesn't mean he suddenly thinks the way you do. It no, just no, it doesn't change any minds at all. No, it's, right. it's it's just a complete and utter waste of time, is what it is. Right. Wait, and it's no fun. That's the big thing for me is that it's no. It's fun to have a conversation with someone, whether they disagree with me or not, if it's done in a spirit of of exploration, you know, and that's great. And but if it turns into uh, you know a contest to see who's right. I, I'm out. I'm not going to play that game. You know, it's just, it's no fun. Now, Chibi's bringing up here in the Skype, uh, I imagine we will get to this, but I'm sure begging a question at the moment is, what is Gendo exactly for the audience? <laughs> well, I think we just answered that, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, we did answer yeah, that there. Yeah. yeah, yeah that it, it, it's a, it, I mean, there are a lot of ways. Actually, I, there are several different modes for Gendo. I, I've been looking at this because my sense... My intention is to start a school to teach Gendo, and I realize that actually there are three very distinct markets for this. There's uh, basically what I would call scientists, people who, or you know, business people or scientists, people who want to use language in as a problem solving, you know, to analyze it, things and you know, and, and get rid of the the linguistic obstacles to making sense out of stuff and coming up with solutions to problems. And I think basically of a team of scientists working, uh, you know, together to solve, to explore something that uh, to the extent that they use regular English in their conversations with each other, they're, they're hampering their ability to be creative and explore. 
another group is basically parents, people who are responsible for raising children and want those children to be successful, happy adults and who realize that the school system is not going to do that and that the most important thing they can ever do for their children is uh, see that they learn how to think well. And so uh, that's another group would be uh, parents or guardians or anybody who has primary responsibility for uh, for some children. And then the last group would be so-called spiritual seekers, people on a deep path of inner uh, you know, seeking enlightenment or whatever you want to call it, uh, monks, people who are committed to, to that path. So I, they're very different paths, and the approach is, is quite different, and yet it's still all the same material, it seems to me. So, um, so I see Gendo as, um, as a kind of attitude about language. And I would say the primary objective of Gendo is to break what I would call the identification with the voice in the head, is that it seems to me, like I said before, that most humans live in a linguistically induced hypnotic trance. They are liter- they've been hijacked by their language machine, by the voice in their head. You know that and that the 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 really big issue in Gendo is to get that that voice that talks to us all the time is not I. It's just my language machine. It doesn't you can't that's one of the first things you learn in meditation is, uh, you know, they tell you to quiet your mind. You sit there and quiet your mind. Well, you sit there for three seconds and you realize that, that your mind is saying, well, this is stupid and boring. Why am I doing this? <laughs> you know, and then they go, oh, I'm not supposed to be thinking. And they stop for another five seconds and pretty soon it's going. You, you realize in meditation that this thing has a life of its own. You can't stop it. Actually, you can. Well, you can't stop it, but over a period of time, you you can allow it to stop itself. It turns out that if you actually turn your attention to it and, and actively listen to the voice in your head, rather than getting caught up in it, it tends to shut up <laughs> by itself right. if, if you actually listen to it. But if you try to repress it, if you say, oh, I shouldn't be thinking, well, that's just more thinking. Oh, I shouldn't be thinking. <laughs> you know, So... Um, you can do that, but but in any case, the, the the central issue is breaking that identification with the voice because that's where all the problems. People, whenever I, well, here's a technique I use. Whenever I find that I am unhappy, angry, tense, fearful, I find myself in any kind of state of mind that I don't like. Uh, I immediately now start listening to what's going on in my language machine. And what I find inevitably is that I have been caught up in some story. And I'm ranting, you know, my language machine is ranting about somebody who did something or this idiot in the car in front of me who doesn't know how to drive or something. And that I am totally caught up in this in this monologue that that, that has become who I am. Well, now, after years of practice and everything, it takes me about three seconds uh, to, to – re- I mean, the, the cue is to be sensitive enough to your own body and, and, you know, and psyche to notice very early on when you're upset about something. And the minute I notice it, that sort of ends it because at that point I listen to my language machine. I say, oh, okay, my language machine is going off about something or other. And, and, I, and I know now, of course, that the language machine really is just my language machine and I don't have to 
give it any energy at all. It's just it does that, and so what? You know, and, and at that moment, I'm disengaged from it, and the feeling disappears. It, it's, it's really so simple. But it took quite a while to get to the point where, where I could do that. And in the beginning, the problem is I wouldn't notice that I was pissed off until I was really pissed off. You know, and then it was almost too late, you know. So it's about catching these things early. And, I mean, I'm, there was a time early in my life when I, if a girlfriend left me or something, well, hell, I could be stuck in some story for months. Yeah, every day I get up and, oh, God, she left me. What am I going to do? Oh, this is terrible, you know. And that I would just be running that story and totally involved in that story for months on end. Now I'm seldom stuck in a story for more than a few seconds before – you know, I mean, as soon as I recognize that I'm not happy, uh, you know, that's pretty much the end of it. And if it's not the end of it, as I had a problem recently, a financial problem, my uh, my landlord hadn't bothered to cash like four or five of my rent checks. And I I usually keep, you know, plenty of money in the bank, I mean, enough to cover all my stuff. And uh, and I and I and I know I mean, I just when I make deposits, I look at what my bank balance is. And so I thought I had all this money in my bank. And then he went and cashed like three thousand dollars worth of rent checks all at once and wiped me out. Oh, wow. And, and I went to the market, you know, to buy some food and it rejected my card because I didn't have any money, and I was sh in shock. And boy, was my language machine going on that. It's no fun to be out of money. And, uh, I mean, it was totally my fault because I never balanced my checkbook. I just, you know, go by what my the ATM says or my statements. And um, so anyway, in, in that particular instance, I mean, I knew enough when I, let, when I walked out of the market uh, not being able to buy the food I just wanted to buy, uh, my language machine was going crazy. It was really into, oh, God, I'm going to be homeless, and, and this is terrible, and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, but the more I analyze, and, I mean, the, what I had to do is get home and look at my bank balance and see what was going on. And when I realized what had happened, you know, I realized that uh, my ability to not get caught up in the machine wasn't going to solve this problem. So that's the thing as I'm getting at is that, 90% of the time, 95% of the time, extricating myself from the story solves the problem because there isn't any problem except that I've been caught up in some stupid story in my head. In this case, that didn't solve the problem. I was still upset. I didn't have any money, and I didn't know where I was going to get some money, and I had to do something to get some money uh, so I could pay my rent and not be homeless and all sorts of things. I got through it, uh, you know, but for a couple of days... I was in a pretty tense situation until I figured out how I was going to solve that problem. So it doesn't solve every problem. It just solves all of the trivial, stupid problems, which really account for about 95% of most people's traumas. You know, there are things that uh, actually that reminds me of a couple of other things. Like uh, it was a time when I was uh, chemically depressed, meaning I was really gloomy all of a sudden, and I didn't understand why, and I – I evaluated it, and I, I also realized also later on that people have a tendency to try to find a reason to be depressed. Like, there must be yeah. a reason. Let me figure that out. And then yeah. I, I evaluated my situation, and I realized, like, uh, there were certain things that I was doing with my diet at the time 
that generally lead to chemical depression. I went, oh, I'm just chemically depressed, whatever. And I just went back to my life. I mean, it still bothered me, but it was more like, okay, I have, say, gout. I understand that I have gout, and gout hurts. You know, no reason to be upset about it. I'm going to go back to my life. Yeah. Uh, And I don't think people ever uh, look for the rational reasoning behind a lot of stuff. I mean, especially uh, my ex-wife has a lot of chemical imbalances that cause all kinds of behavioral problems, and she will try to rationalize why she's mad, you know, yeah. there's no reason at all that it has anything to do with anything logical. Uh, every now and then she'll have moments of clarity, but it basically is still along that same line. You know, it's just you, you find yourself trying to find a reason to be it yeah. because you. And it's easy to find reasons if you're looking for them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Now we have yeah. a question here from one of the guests. Uh, uh, please uh, ask your guest his thoughts on anonymity or anonymity, basically being anonymous with regards to anonymity. Yeah, uh, <laughs> with regards to conversing. In particular, the internet brings an ease of anonymity, giving either party of a conversation the ability to hide his or identification behind a made-up avatar, screen name, handle. How is language affected by such, you know, anonymous behavior? Um. I don't really worry about it. I mean, I've always used my real name in communications, and I just don't give a shit. So, and I understand that a lot of people do. They don't like to use their real name. I don't really understand that. I'm not, you know, it's a little hard for me to figure out what they think they're they're letting themselves in for. I mean, I've heard all their stories, and I understand them. But, um, and, and but for me, for the purposes of an actual conversation with a, with a person, I, I don't think it makes much difference. I've, you know, I've been podcasting since, I don't know, 2006. And I've had thousands of conversations with people from all over the world. And some of them used real names and some of them didn't. But the quality of the conversation really was about the quality of the conversation about whether people could be open and intimate and honest. And, um, so I don't think anonymity. I think that's just an issue that some people have, and uh, and it doesn't really bother me. I like to know people's real names. I mean, you know, or the name that they're comfortable with. Uh, you know, it just feels better to me. But um, I've had, you know, I, and that's another thing. You know, I've had some amazing conversations in the Matrix here, really better conversations. Uh, for the most part than I've ever had in physical space with people, except maybe with lovers on occasion you know, over the years. But I've, I've had the most intimate conversations with people about stuff that is so intimate and close to their, you know, their psyche, their soul or my psyche and soul that I, I can't imagine uh, having these conversations in a Starbucks with somebody, you know, uh, there, there's a kind of something that goes on when it's all in your head, when you when you're not looking at a person, when it's just a voice, and they're and especially if you're jacked in, if you got a headset on, their voice is inside my head, and my voice is inside their head, and there's a kind of intimacy that I've discovered there that I I don't find. I'm, I've come to the conclusion now that I actually prefer to talk to people online than to to actually meet with them. I've had occasion to meet uh, some of the people that I've talked to in my podcasts over the years uh, who happen to live around here. And I've actually become friends with a couple of them, but I've had uh, had conversations with others. We met at a Starbucks or something. And actually, I was really disappointed in the quality of the conversation when we're in person. There's all sorts of mammalian politics going on. If it's, if it's two men 
then uh, they're jockeying for, you know, it's, it's male, you know, monkey business, alpha male crap going on that, that, that all this other stuff goes on. And if it's a guy and a girl, then you got all that monkey business going on. And here in the Matrix, there there isn't any of that crap. It's just a voice, you know. If someone's grossly overweight, if I was meeting with them in person, you know, there's probably a part of me that would be judging them and thinking, oh, shit, people are going to think I know this big, fat slob. <laughs> you know? Right. But uh, here, I don't know what anybody looks like. I don't care what they look like. It doesn't make one bit of difference to me. All I care about is the ideas in their head, what they're saying, what they're thinking. And I really cherish that. I really love it, <laughs> you know. So that if that kind of anonymity, I think, in my case, has led to to much more intimacy and communication than I get when I'm physically in somebody's presence. Well, yeah, I definitely agree. Um, well, also just about the verbal thing, um, being able to hear is definitely a different dynamic than, say, talking on a forum or a chat room. Um, like, it's one of the other things that's going to end up coming up in the film is like a forum conversations, for example. You and I could be having a debate uh, about something and say, you'll crush like 12 things that I said. So then I'll make a reply about the two things that I that I you know that you didn't address, and then <laughs> act like I'm still winning, because you know? <laughs> I posted last. I must be therefore winning. Um, and yeah, what they I do yeah. is they just pepper the forum with posts and hope that nobody reads the post that's three pages back where you already destroyed their argument. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I've never been in forums. I, I find them just not satisfying to me. I like talking to people. Uh, yeah, text text uh, just leaves me really cold. It, it's yeah, don't do that. <laughs> well, especially all the other complications that come with it is what I usually tell people. You know, uh, particularly on forums, is if you don't like someone, when you're reading something that somebody says, if you don't like that person, the voice of that person always sounds like an asshole. Yes, of course. <laughs> you, end up, you end up taking everything they said in the most negative possible context. Some of the insanities that I've seen come out of stuff like that, you know, it's like yeah. if somebody is very upset at you or dislikes you, you could write something completely nice. And because they're so mad at you and they want to engage with you because of it, yeah. you know, you end up having a conversation with somebody. No, this is what you meant. You really meant this. Yeah. And and I, yeah. I mean it. No, you're you're lying. This, this is what you meant. And you could say, no, no, really, it, it's not. No, no, no. This is what you meant. <laughs> You know, and, and they don't just put words in your mouth; they put thoughts in your head. You know, yeah. this is what you were thinking. Well, that even takes place in voice too. But in voice, it's a lot easier. Like I say, I can, I can tell. I'm pretty good at spotting whether or not I'm going to have a productive conversation with somebody pretty quickly. I mean, really, within a couple seconds, usually I've already. I mean, I've been wrong, but but not often. And. Um, there's so much more information in a person's voice than in te again text is missing so much it's you know yeah and plus people have time to craft it you know which means it's not a real immediate response they're they're editing themselves in some ways that's good because they have time to consider what they actually want to say but all the spontaneity is gone you know whereas when you're talking with someone one on one uh, you know, you're pretty much getting who they are. Right. That's very uh, true. Go ahead, Chibi. I was just going to say, I feel the same way as Heron on this, but at the same time, I have to say I'm glad we have people like V around because 
a lot more communication is going on on the forums these days and different in text and you can't get everybody in voice so yeah you know, no somebody, i think text is great for people who who like that you know and, and there's probably a lot of good stuff that can take place there but i just am not familiar with it because i've never done it what did you mean specifically about me being around chibi what Nothing. <laughs> no, I just mean you, you know you post on forums and and address people in text a lot and you know somebody's got to do it right. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, and it's and even when I'm doing it though, I feel the need to expose so many of the pitfalls that people get into. Uh, you know the, the stupidities that Heron is talking about. You you could write like thirty more of them to go with text chat. You know, in the different ways yeah. people. Yeah, but the problem with that is when you point that stuff out to people, they just get angry. It doesn't really. You must have noticed that. <laughs> you know, it's on I mean, people, but yeah, I mean, it, I mean, for example, on the forums in the Zeitgeist movement, we managed to finally affect the community there enough that people have figured out that maybe me insulting that guy is not going to make him want to listen to me. They figured that out. It, it pretty much polices itself. I rarely have to warn anybody. I rarely have to ban anybody because people. After trying it for a while, hey, hey, let's try this experiment. Why don't none of us personally attack anyone else? And, and let's see. Is that really a big problem? I mean, that people going. I mean, I, I don't know I mean, that people are personally attacking other people and calling them assholes. And sh- it's not a problem anymore. It used- no, but I mean, it was. Oh well, and it still is on the on the internet. It, it's almost second nature. It happens constantly. Um, anytime, in fact, especially if, if uh, somebody is losing an argument, it's generally an indication that they're losing is when they start pulling out the, you know, the punches. Yeah. Well, you know, I use Usenet a lot. So I am, and now that I think about it, I forgot about that, that I do use Usenet and uh, inhabit several forums there. And there is a, what I see, though, the places I go, they're more, I guess they're more intellectually tuned into stuff. They, they aren't quite that blatant. But there's a lot of one-upsmanship going on, you know, and everyone's trying to show that they're more enlightened than everybody else. And and there's snide, subtle uh, attacks, but they're not as, as gross as calling somebody an asshole. They're, uh, they're subtle, sort of clever intellectual uh, attacks, you know, with, but, but nonetheless, they're motivated by the same kind of stuff, though. Right. And that's it, and it basically I think that it, it becomes almost bread and butter and and people definitely don't like uh, having somebody call them out on that because those are the rules that they're so accustomed to playing by it, it's like a crutch you know and they need to be able to fall back on it and it's amazing too because when when you try to talk to them about it th- there seem to be rules of engagement about this sort of stuff people realize it but it but they want it to continue because that way in the event that they're ever pinned down somewhere logically that they can just you know fall back on the you know on the attacks to, to get well, them out people of people seem to think that, again that in a text that is that's one of the reasons i don't like text is that people people act really rudely in ways that they would never act in person because somebody would punch their fucking lights out if they said those kinds of things you know but people can get away with it in a text room and be real jerks and rude and you know that that's just um that really yeah, I don't like that. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's kind of I think what the what the person in the chat room was asking about was what were your thoughts about how the way language changes when the person knows that they they can't be held accountable for what it is that they do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and yeah, that if, is if they want to be rude, yeah, 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 you, yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah, that's true. When, if they want to be rude, uh, yeah, it's a perfect opportunity to be an idiot. <laughs> it reminds me of the inside the bathroom stall. 
you know, how many bathroom stalls have you seen, you know, that are defaced in some way? People put up all kinds of nasty stuff there that they would never say in person. Um, you know, like, for example, you know, somebody might say, for a good time, call Jan, you know, your ex-girlfriend, and give her number on the, you know, on the bathroom wall. But you're not going to see that same guy go to I-75 with a spray can and start spraying it on, you know, on the freeway, <laughs> you know, uh, because he's not interested in the, in the consequences. And essentially, people unfortunately abuse the concept of the the internet and its um, and its uh, <coughs> basically its you know anonymity, as you said earlier, uh, because of the fact that they realize that they can kind of get that out of their system, and there's nothing that's going to happen to them because of it. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's it's amazing how it becomes a reflection. I, actually, one of the most Notorious trolls I've ever dealt with uh, openly admitted at one point, not when he thought I was reading, obviously, uh, that in in person he's a very meek and mild individual, and then he goes to the internet to look for people to get his aggressions out on so that he can feel better about his day. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just flat out. It's basically the same bullying behavior you see, only you can do it on the internet. Now we actually just had a caller. Um, who wanted to um, get added. By the way, um, Ronnie, whenever you want to join the show via Skype, PM me, and then I will add you to the call. Um, and welcome to V-Radio. Oh, good. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Uh, great. Um, thanks for taking my call. I, I actually just wanted to um, uh, talk about the anonymity thing. Um, the, the thing that I can see, and, and maybe your guest can, uh, Heron, is it, can uh, answer this. Um <clears throat> With regards to someone who is uh, anonymous, they can just turn themselves off if they're going, you know, in, in the wrong sort of train of thought or in a train of thought that somebody disagrees with and turn themselves off and come back as another persona, you know. So, you know, this is the kind of thing that I, I actually um, object terribly to uh, anonymity uh, and for that particular reason. Yeah. Well, I'm just more interested in what they actually say. I don't really care what their name is. If they go away and come back under a different name and they're still full of shit, then it doesn't really make any difference. And again, uh, I'm not I'm not too active in text forums in the and in the the Usenet groups that I go to. I already know, you know, I mean that there's a standard group of people there and I know who I'm dealing with there. Yeah, but normally I only deal with voice, so that doesn't isn't a problem for me because if they go away and come back under a different name, they still have the same voice, so they can't really hide. <laughs> right, for right. sure. Now, and I I understand where you're coming from by bringing that up, um, and it's it is definitely a relevant issue. Um, and it's also just about the way people behave differently, like even even in voice. I mean, I've. I've interacted with people, you know, on, say, Ventrilo or, you know, or TS3 or Skype, you know, and then been in those people's presence and their attitude changes entirely. You oh, know? yeah. You can't get away with the, that stuff in person because, you know, you'd get punched out. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> you know? I mean, even if, uh, it, even uh, especially in the written format, that's definitely the case. Like, I've confronted, uh, you know, I, I use the word confront very lightly because I never insinuated I was going to do anything to these people because that was part of my test. I didn't go out of my way to try to intimidate them. I didn't imply that I was going to hit them. But not only did they not repeat what they said online, they also like tried to act like we were best friends. 
You know, <laughs> this, this is a guy that, you know, not more than, say, a day ago on the Internet was saying, you know, I'm a bad parent or, you know, this and that, and I shouldn't be allowed to have kids because of this or that. And then in person, you know, smiles and says, hey, man, how you doing? You know, and you're like, yeah. what? You know, so. Yeah. People are crazy, man. That, that's that's really the bottom line is people are nuts, most of them. I mean, I think that, that's really something people need to come to come to grips with. I mean, it, it took me a few years to really get comfortable with the fact that most people are stark raving mad most of the time. And when I, when I get involved with people, I assume that whenever I meet somebody new that they're basically nuts. Now, once in a while, I'm wrong. But I always go into the situation assuming that they're they're totally nuts and possibly dangerous and and then play it by that, you know. And then sometimes I find out, no, you know, actually this person's okay, you know, but that's rare. You know, most people are just uh you know, a couple of pushes away from becoming mass murderers. You know, people who kill people and they're not that different from normal people. Everybody lives in this sort of hypnotic trance, and if you push the wrong buttons in the wrong person at the wrong time, they could do anything. Very true. Very true. Especially um, when you know, people tend to forget that these people who do commit these atrocities are all, you know, all used to be, you know, just people like anyone else. Well, they are. No, that even after they're, ju- they are just people like everybody else. They just got the wrong buttons pushed. Right, you know, and that's that's actually a, a very interesting, you know, uh, how much we can ignore that and instead focus on whatever it is that they did. Which, no matter what, somebody shouldn't get off the hook for that. But I, I bring up this yeah. example frequently. But like the kids who shot all those people at Columbine, yeah. you know, they were looking for excuses, but they looked for every excuse other than the ones that they should have been looking at, which was, <laughs> well, they were playing Mortal Kombat and they were playing Doom. Yeah, they were playing violent video games. I'm like, you know, millions of kids play violent video games. Yeah, don't go to yeah. the school and shoot people. Yeah. They left out the part of, oh, and they were being bullied constantly and pushed around at the school, and nobody did anything about it. They didn't want to yeah. talk about that part. You know, yeah. and once again, I don't advocate going to schools and shooting up kids. But being well, unless you really who, have to. You know. <laughs> being somebody who went to school uh, in a place where shootings were pretty common, which was actually – Something that my colleagues and I going to school in the inner city thought was kind of funny was that people shot each other in and around our school on a regular basis in Pontiac, Michigan. But, you know, a couple of white kids from suburbia do it, and it's big national news. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, but, right. but the point was is that any time I had ever had any kind of violent inclination, it wasn't because I was playing Mortal Kombat or Doom or any of those other video games. It's because I was trapped in a room with a complete jerk-off who wouldn't leave me alone along with another group of them, and I had to be there because it was school. You know, that's what makes people think these things. And it's easier for them just to ignore that and to blame it on external things rather than take responsibility for the fact of, hey, maybe when those kids were getting picked on, I should have done something about it because that would imply responsibility to themselves. Yeah, and maybe their parents should have actually been paying attention. Absolutely. You know, and known their kids and understood what's going through their heads, you know. For sure, for sure. You know, and and to teach people how to communicate, I just, you know, it's, uh, especially in situations like school, you're supposed to be able to be able to get educated in those situations, and you spend the whole time kind of under attack, unless you're one of the fortunate few who gets to be in the in crowd. And then when you get to know the people that are in the quote-unquote in crowd, most of them are completely miserable, too, because they are utterly trapped 
in the rules of engagement that, you know, that are required for you to be a successful person in that in crowd. You know, they get, the in crowd gets to pick your friends. They get to pick what schools, you know, or what you clothes you wear, what music you listen to and everything. You know, it's just, it's a big bag of stupid, honestly. Um, yeah. But um, in regards to, uh, you know, going back to the, the subject of, of language, um, you know, uh, but uh, basically we, we've discussed, you know, a lot of benefits here. We've talked about, obviously, the five stupidities, and you gave it a, a, an example of a podcast that people should go to to learn more about that. Um, if you could, right now, as a human being, somehow uh, control one aspect of language and change it utterly, you know, like if you just had, like, say, some kind of special brain fixing. Oh, yeah. No, it's easy. Yeah, it, it's breaking the identification with the voice in your head. You know, to actually get that anything you ever have ever said. I mean, the, the fact what I'm speaking right now is not something that Heron can do consciously. There isn't time. I mean, when you consider the complexity of language, the, of the grammar, of choosing the words and deciding which words you're going to use and which words you're going to emphasize and then control your diaphragm so that one word is louder than the other words and get your tongue and your lips and your larynx to all work together to come out and, and pronounce words properly and a long run-on sentence like I'm creating right now, there's no way that that can happen consciously. This is happening because my language machine is doing it according to the way it's been programmed. Now, I have significantly reprogrammed my own language machine. It doesn't operate the way it used to. But nevertheless, it's still, it is my language machine that is generating this talk that you're hearing right at this moment. It's not Heron. It's not I that does this. Any language that comes out of anybody's mouth, or whether it even comes out of their mouth or just stays internal, is a product of their language machine. And once you break that identification and you, and you no longer have ego involved in that, and you can listen to the language machine and edit it and react to it, like I say, as an editor, and listen to see whether it makes any sense or not, or whether it's just a bunch of bullshit, uh, that, I mean, that's why people kill people. Is, is they get caught up in a story in their head and they think that's who they are and their whole life depend and reality depends upon identifying with something that they said and they're going to kill somebody because somebody disagrees with them. Uh, once you get that that voice isn't you, then you don't have to defend it anymore. You can begin to question it and ask whether it makes any sense or not. And you can begin to reprogram it. So, yeah. The, the most important single thing is to break the identification with the voice in your head. That's it. You know, that actually uh, brings up a, a different work that I was familiar with that actually helped me quite a bit when I was growing up called Psycho-Cybernetics. Ah, know if, yes. Oh, yeah. That was, um, a, that was one of the few books I ever did read before I got into Alan Watts and reading. Psycho-Cybernetics was probably one of the books that, that primed me for Alan Watts. And it's it's so good because I mean it teaches you just how your personality forms and how you get all these anxieties and essentially allows you to kind of reprogram your own brain. Like you get to decide what bothers you, you get to decide what doesn't bother you. Um, I used it. I mean, but back when I was, a, I read it when I was about fifteen, and I, like many other teenagers, had a lot of trouble talking to girls. So I used the methods that this guy laid out in this book about like rehearsing in your mind and creating new positive experiences for your brain 
Um, and it completely, I completely overcame any anxiety about talking to girls. Period. <laughs> cool. You know. Yeah, Maxwell Maltz, man, that guy, uh, that was an important book. He was one of the first guys. He was a groundbreaking uh, guy, for sure. Right, and it's it, it actually is, I think, one of the reasons why when Jack was you know, talking so much about the environment and how it programs, you know, who we are, I was so receptive. I'm like, oh, well, yeah, duh, I knew that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. because and it's but so many people just don't, and, and that's unfortunate. But um, well, again, most people are stuck in their story. Mm-hmm. Most people have got a story about who they are, what the world is, and what you can do, and what you can't do, and blah blah blah, and on and on and on, and they are totally stuck <laughs> in that story. Yeah, that's that's reality for them. It's not just their particular construction, their reaction to their experience. It is the way the world really is. And it's totally insane. I mean, that is, a, as far as I'm concerned, a, a form of mental illness. And probably 98% of humans are are in that pathological state. Absolutely. Um, and I think uh, particularly, and now, there's a term that I, I'm, you know, because I, you know I always time you on this, but but so far we've been talking for like an hour and a half, and you haven't used it at all. <laughs> so I, I'm going to bring it up because I know you were trying to say, you see, you see, Neil, I don't have to use no define <laughs> language monkey. Well, that's most humans. Mm-hmm. You know that I mean, really, we're monkeys. I mean, I actually, I mean, people always want to correct me and say, no, we're actually we're apes. We're not monkeys. Yes, I know that. But language monkey just sounds funnier than language ape. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, basically, human beings are monkeys. And what distinguishes humans from the other monkeys is our linguistic ability. We're language monkeys. It's right. Very simple. And the and a, and a language monkeys is about ninety eight percent of them, and the non language monkeys, what I call earthlings, are the ones who understand that the voice in their head isn't who they are. But right. most language monkeys are actually, like I say, under the spell of the voice in their head, and this goes back hundreds of thousands of years. You know, now, we're lifting say, ourselves out of this trance that is hundreds of thousands of years old. Now, the, the voice in our head, you know, it, it means so many different things to people. People have identified it as God. You know, no. people have identified it as, am I thinking to myself? Is this me? You know, um, and, and I guess that's what I'm getting at. And I'm not saying it's obviously yeah. any of those things. I agree with your assumption. No, it's just your voice. It's just, it, like I say, your brain, and there's a part of your brain that takes all of your incoming sensual data and your history and all that and makes a story out of it. And we learn to do that from the mo- actually from in the womb. We, we begin learning language. Our, our mother's way of speaking uh, is, you know, babies are literally vibrated by their mother's speech patterns. So from the moment we're conceived, we're already on our way to learning a language, the language that our mother spoke. And uh, that's what we're doing, you know. It's, yeah. Absolutely. I, I wish that more people thought about it in that in that direction. I know, for example, when I read Psycho-Cybernetics, the concept to me that, you know, wait a minute, you mean I, I can rewrite all this garbage that people thrusted on me? You know, I can, you know, redefine how I react to people and, and their garbage, you know, and that's, it was also very liberating because we're we're trained to have that herd mentality. And it's another issue, like, you know, you're talking about different ways that people use language you know, uh, when people speak for for the unidentified majority, you know, they say nobody likes you or no. everybody hates you. 
yeah. or everyone likes me, and you ask them to identify who that is, they're usually talking about maybe six or seven people. Maybe their group of friends does not like you. Um, and so, therefore, to them, in their limited view of the world, that means everyone. You yeah. know. Well, see, this gets solved by uh, the five stupidities. One of them is absolutism. Everyone, I mean, right away, you don't even have to, you don't have to go any further than that. Anybody who says everyone, you know, I mean, that's just clearly wrong on the face of it. It's just simply not true. Now, right. maybe you can say everybody I know <laughs> or a lot of the people I know don't like you. Okay, well, then you can say that, but that's. That's not what people say. They say, well, everybody does this, or nobody does this. You know, it's just bullshit on the face of it. You don't need to go any further. Absolutely. And people do that stuff a lot. Like, uh, yeah, yes, what was the term? Um, what is it? Like 80% of all statistics are made up on the spot? <laughs> sure, I do that all the time. Because yeah. <laughs> people, I think everybody you know, does that. Yeah, everybody does it to some degree, for sure, as an expression. It's when people use it and then say, you see, I just created a statistic. You know, out of the thin air, and therefore I sound smarter, and you all better listen because I have a statistic. And yeah. then you ask them to back up that statistic, and they and they don't have it. And it's no, of course not. It's amazing how people can just talk themselves. Well, in but the good thing is, is if you're smart, you just admit. Well, of course I don't know. I just made that up. That's just my guess. Right. <laughs> you know, and that, and then you're off the hook. <laughs> That's what I do. Usually people aren't smart enough to ask me where I come up with my statistics, and I just make them up. But my my guesses are fairly well-informed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and it's um, – now you, you said about – okay, so we come to the issue of we want to change people's identification with that voice inside. Um, I guess then we would move on to if you could change another thing, <laughs> what would it be? Oh, um, I think that's enough. Really, that would be the whole game. That would be the whole game as far as I can see. That would change the course of history on this planet. That would create a new – that's the difference between a language monkey and an earthling. You'd have a planet full of people who could actually think and talk and negotiate and solve problems without arguing. That would change everything. And that would actually be amazing uh, to be able to to level the playing field and to eliminate so many things to prevent people from conversing with each other and exchanging with each other uh, to make it actually free thinking. You see, that's another another thing that I, I came up with is like a lot of my uh, problems that I noticed with all this stuff came from when I was in the Libertarian Party, and they, they were supposedly a big free society. But they were brutal with anyone who did not speak and think and act the exact same way they did. You know, brutal. Yeah, surprise, surprise. Right. I mean, like, I, as I was quoting with Stefan Molyneux the other night, you know, Michael Badnerick, who's one of the few libertarians I still, you know, uh, would say I, I follow his work, you know, pointed at, they brought him before the Libertarian Party and they were expecting him to give like a rah rah speech to galvanize membership because a lot of people were leaving it for the Republican Party to go join Ron Paul. You know, and he's like, "Well, you guys were expecting me to, you know, to galvanize everybody, make everybody happy. Well, I'm not here to do that. I'm I'm here to tell you why the party is dead. And one of the first reasons is is every time you guys, you know, basically you guys spend 98% of your time arguing about the 2% of the platform that you don't agree on, and yeah. you attack <laughs> each other viciously with ad hominem attacks and personal attacks. And you know, and that's why he said this is why we can't sell ice water in the desert." You know, because you guys can't work together ever, you know, and you're supposed to be the free thinking society and you're not allowed to do anything 
but be exactly like everyone else in the Libertarian Party. And anything else, then there's something wrong with you, and, and you need to be singled out and punished verbally and mentally. Um, I managed to, to point this out enough to them because most of these people believe in the non-aggression principle, but they have no problem being aggressive in their speech uh, you know, or in their mannerisms when dealing with somebody. They won't punch you because that's a violation of the non-aggression yeah, principle. Yeah. But, but, it, but, you know, but ruining your reputation or attacking you personally is, is totally acceptable. Yeah. You know, fortunately enough, there are some libertarians who realize that, that that's not logical. In our, well, they're like, say, 2% of humans. But the thing is, you're going to find them any place. You know, they, you're even, there are some Christians who aren't idiots, you know. Uh, Actually, it's a small percentage of people, but you're going to find them everywhere. But, you know, 98% of the people in the zeitgeist movement are idiots. 99% or 98% of the people in every movement are idiots. <laughs> so that's what you get. <laughs> Yeah, I have a question for Heron, actually, um, just to uh -oh. make a distinction. You said uh, we're not the voice in our head. Oh, you and I have had these yeah. discussions in private, yeah. but uh, who, who am I exactly? If I'm oh, I'm so <laughs> glad you asked that question. That's a great question. Yeah, that's the first thing that comes to your mind. Once you realize that the, if the voice in the head isn't who I am, well, then who the hell am I? What is I? And my answer to that is I don't have a clue. That's the mystery. You know, that's that. Language doesn't go there, I think. I think that this gets to the heart of the mystery and the unspeakable, uh, ineffable nature of self and the mystery of the universe. Um, I mean, ultimately, I mean, I've made up answers for that, but those, you know, those are more religious kind of things than scientific kinds of things. They're just, it's just a story that I like. Uh, but I would say um, that's the mystery. I don't know. I, the word I is, uh, you know, whatever that word refers to, it, I, I have not found any uh, satisfactory way to talk about it yet. And I'm quite content to just uh, say that I don't know. It's okay that we don't know how to talk about some things. Um, that seems to me perfectly reasonable. I don't know how to talk about what I really is. And maybe we will someday. Maybe we'll find a better way of talking about it. But, of, de uh, of defining who we are as people? Well, well, why as people? Mm, what does that add? You're talking about consciousness. Like, what is the ground of consciousness itself? Well, like, all who, of that. Who is the, the watcher behind the... Yeah, who is it that uh, knows the self doesn't exist? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I don't have a satisfactory answer for, for those things. I, mean, I, say, I do have answers that, that I've made up for myself that that are sort of okay up to a point. I mean, one of the answers, of course, is that it's all God, you know, is that God is a great dreamer and uh, invents this universe as a kind of dream and is everything in the dream. I mean, if you're God and you're going to invent universes, I mean, what's the point unless you can get, get to experience them from the inside? I mean, you're not just going to make it and set it out there on the table and then go have a Coke. You know, I mean, the whole point is to experience your creation, and the way you do that is by being everything in your creation. So who's looking through my eyes? Who's looking through your eyes? Well, I don't use the word God. I use the word Bob. So it's all Bob. But again, that's that's not an answer. That's just a, a nice little story. <laughs> well, when you think about it, Bob is definitely more powerful than God, because Bob spelled backwards is still Bob. Yeah, but, I know. But Bob God spelled backwards is just dog. 
I know. Yeah, yeah. God is a tired old word that, that <laughs> just doesn't go anywhere anymore. Bob is sort of funny, and it sort of sounds like God, and uh, it works for me. But yeah, but you know, but but God spelled backwards is just dog. You see, it's, it's a less powerful word. Whereas Bob is always Bob. Yes, no matter under all well it's, under several permutations. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was. Uh, this is where we get into talking about the story in that sort of sense. I, I guess. Uh, it, I mean, it very well could be that it. You know, whatever I is is just a mechanical process that's created this pattern that we. Well, call. it depends on what you mean by the word I. See, that's exactly the point. Is what, you, and that's a choice that you have to make. Yeah, I mean, you could talk about the ego as a as a series of patterns of behavior. And you could probably come up with a fairly decent, uh, you know, uh, description of, of that process. But that's that's a choice you make to define it at that level. If you if you want to go deeper to, like you say, some fundamental uh, nature of awareness itself, well, then it's it's got to go deeper than just that level. So I mean, it's about the, what you want to mean when you uh, when you talk about the word I. Yeah. Well, I, I would go back to the original I don't know sort of thing. Yeah, that works for really me. <laughs> what the possibilities are for like self-organizing structures or whatever. I mean, who knows? Maybe Science is a oh. new enterprise. We are right. only just at the verge of, of a scientific era. You know, it's only a couple hundred years old, say 400 years. Uh, Francis Bacon, as far as I'm concerned, uh, is the, one of the originators of any kind of modern science. And that was right around 1600. And uh, so, you know, we're just getting started. And it's really only in the last 50 years or so that science has just really begun to take off. So over the next, uh, I, I'm expecting again over the next 20 to 40 years. Well, this this sort of relates to what we're talking now is I'm really expecting a kind of technology of consciousness to emerge uh, in the next few decades. In the same sense that electricity was once seen as sort of magic. Uh people used to tra you know like Mesmer used to travel around Europe uh, with his electric shows and uh you know and make people's hair stand on end and it was all sort of magic and entertaining and weird and mystical uh but there was no technology of electricity in 1800 uh it was all just weird shit but you know science began to really take a look at it and over the last 200 years we now have a technology of electricity we're sitting here talking on Skype <laughs> to people all over the world and yeah. uh, and the difference is language. Actually, electricity hasn't changed. It's the same now as it ever was. It's just that over the last 200 years, scientists have literally developed new, accurate language to talk about electrical phenomena that gave them the power to control this uh, stuff. I mean, it's not a stuff anyway. There's no such thing as electricity either. But anyway, we've got this technology now. My sense is that consciousness is something that has been talked about for the last 2,000 years, that it was pretty much the same. It, it's in the state now that electricity was in, in, say, 1800 or so. But now we're beginning to get a handle on it. It's just beginning, but with neuroscience and all the cognitive stuff that's going on, we're beginning to get a, a, a sense of, of consciousness. And my sense is that within maybe a few years, we're going to have the beginnings of a technology of consciousness. And that, again, will change absolutely everything. No more 
no more being unhappy about who you are or how you feel or anything. It's just if you want to change it, you just change it. Just like now, if your lights go out, you don't call a priest and pray about it and wonder, ooh, what's going to, you know, get the gods to, you know, you call an electrician and the lights go back on and you write him a check, you know, and that's that's all there is to it. My sense is that we will be somewhere like that with uh, regard to what we call consciousness in uh, maybe 20 to 40 years. Maybe. Maybe not. Uh a clarification in case I, I know it com- it catches me confuses me a little bit when we're talking about reedification and uh, when you mentioned just now little passing comment oh there's no such thing as electricity right and correct me if I'm wrong but what you're saying is the word and and the mathematical description of of the field for example I mean this is language yeah. uh, there might be something out there that we well, there call may be some yeah the, oh, okay yeah this gets what this whole like, that, I'm sorry. That, yeah, what you're just saying is that this is the word that we use to describe this particular thing that we something observe. Something is going on. Yeah, something it, is it, going on. Electricity. <laughs> not, yeah. yeah, you're not saying electricity doesn't exist. You're just saying, uh, what is it? Well, this is the word well, we use. Well, again, and I'm, I would even go so far as to say it doesn't make any difference whether electricity exists or not. The whole idea of objective reality is just a theory. All we have it seems to me anyway, is our experience. I have experience. I'm sitting here. I can feel my butt on the floor. I got a fan blowing. It was kind of hot today, so there's a fan. I can feel the wind. I can see my monitors in front of me. I hear hear your voice and so on. Uh, the idea that there's really something out there creating these impressions, that's just a theory. That's just talk. That's all in the domain of language. That, that that really there is a monitor, there are two or three monitors on my desk, and there really is a fan that's uh, blowing and creating this sensation I'm feeling, and, and there really is a floor, and there really is a planet, and all of that stuff, um, you know, that's just talk. All I have is experience. Now we create all this language to give us a little story to feel better about our experience. It, it may all be wrong. There may be nothing out there. I don't know. And so in some sense, it doesn't really make any difference if there's anything out there or not. There does seem to be some sort of consistency, though, in our experience. Right. And and that we can go on. There is this consistency. You know, tomorrow the sun probably will come up. It's come up every other day. <laughs> you know, I'm going to assume it'll come up tomorrow. But whether it really will, whether it's really out there or not, those are metaphysical, philosophical questions that – the answers are irrelevant as far as I can see. Yeah, those are deep discussions that uh, you could we could base a whole show on. Yeah, those are you're you're right. Those are deep. I really that's what I really liked about those science wars lectures. It really showed the depth of how those questions are actually relevant to ask about reality. I mean, people take that for granted. <laughs> and, oh, well, yeah, know, they're 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 good to call. Yeah, it's good to get us in a position where we can admit we don't know. Uh, to me agnosticism is like the highest form of philosophy there is. I call myself a radical agnostic. People usually think of agnostics as people who are too weak to become atheists. (laughs) But it seems to me that the truth is we just don't know. And, And that that's just such a really high place to be, to just get that we don't really know. You know, we came into the game late. We were sold a whole load of bullshit, uh, and we're still digging out from underneath the bullshit we were told to begin with. And we're slowly trying to figure this stuff out. And maybe we'll learn, well, surely we will learn more. 
And, that's uh, one of the reasons I call myself an agnostic-leaning atheist, because that seems to be the most plausible at the moment. But you know, one of the things that happened to me when I even started contemplating that is I just I realized I needed to cleanse my brain of so much crap that I had put in there you know, it was superstition to justify certain things to make myself more secure about the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to I, me atheism is just another another belief system. Believing in atheism is as dumb as believing in Christianity or Islam or Amway or or any stupid belief system. I would you know? say that that's a you could make a semantic distinction there. Like there's all these ways of dividing up like strong atheist or a you know, a weak atheist or whatever. Well, I mean, I'm just talking about the way it actually think, shows up for most people. Right. Yeah, you, know, like, you can get intellectual I an atheist, but not in the sense that I'm an atheist that I believe this. It's just yeah. a non, you know, a. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're right. That makes sense. Non-belief. Yeah, and, but that's not the way it is for most. Most people actually believe <laughs> there is no god of any kind. And that's very different than merely not believing right. in a God. But I I find, at least in my environment, using the term atheist is more. It, it just cuts cuts the fat. It's easier just to say that. And and if somebody questions that, I can say, well, what that all that means is that I don't have the belief that you have, and I just leave it at that. I mean, well, it depends on about, yeah. It depends you know, on we, yeah what your objective is in your communication. <laughs> I never yeah. I, I to me that's an important distinction. I, I would. I never call myself an atheist. I mean, I, I usually don't even talk about those things unless someone else brings them up, and then and then I say my favorite thing to say is that believing in atheism is as dumb as believing in Jesus. I mean, again, it gets down to the fact is that we don't know what the ultimate nature of reality really is, and so it's pointless to have a belief about anything. You know, I mean, it seems pretty clear to me. I mean, it's it's a bet. You know, it's a statistical thing. I'm going to be very surprised and very pissed off if when I die, I end up at the pearly gates and they're going to send me to hell for not believing in Jesus. Because, you know, I mean, I, and I got to admit, you know, maybe there's some slight chance that the Christians are right. But it, this chance is so slight on, in, in my evaluation that it's not worth giving any, any serious thought. It's just nonsense. But I will admit that maybe... Maybe they're right. Maybe everything that's said in the Bible is really true and all that. And if it is, I will feel quite content when I get marched up before God to tell him to go fuck himself because he really, uh, really is an asshole for setting up something as stupid as that and, and then burning me in hell forever for not buying that bullshit story. That, and I'll, go, I'll go march off to hell. The hell with him. That was one of my favorite parts about that whole stupidity when that you know when the idea that what was going on in Japan uh, was a punishment from God. Uh, you know, like when that tidal wave happened and the nuclear reactor melts yeah. down because there's so many atheists in Japan. And I was just like, you know what? If God did do that. Um, I'm fuck him. Uh, yeah, yeah he can asshole. he can go to hell. That, that's he's what I said. Asshole. Yeah, and I, I just it, it's amazing to me actually. You could do a whole radio show on that. Even I, there's a website <laughs> called Atrocities of the Bible, and what's great about it is that it quotes from a Christian website. You know where they have all the Bible online, yeah. so oh, you good, can't yeah. say that he mistranslated it. You can't say that you know, yeah. and it has all the different versions right there for you to look at. <laughs> you know. And there's just so much stuff in there. You're like, you know what? I mean, it's like Jock says, you yeah. know, this guy sounds like a psychopath. You yeah, know, who the hell could uh, could worship a god like that? I mean, he's just uh, pathetic. You know, it's just. And e 
every firstborn child in Egypt, you know, even the infants, you know, like the, yeah. the one-month-old infants needed to die, you know, because their parents did sure. stuff. Yeah, you know, but, but he's a loving and a forgiving God. That's right. You know, yeah. but, but don't yeah. oppress his people or he'll kill your kids because they need to go. <laughs> they deserve it. <laughs> yeah, it's pathetic. It really is. So, but like I say, I, I do have to admit that if if that's true, then I'm fucked. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so I, I'm I'm willing to pay that price. You know, but it's just a bet. And the fact is, I simply don't know. All I can do is take a look around and make my best bets. That's it. I'm that's that's nowhere else I can go. Well, now we're down to the last two minutes of the show, uh, Heron. Um, why don't you give your website URL again? Oh, uh, it's gendo.net, G-E-N-D-O.net. Uh, I can be reached on Skype. My Skype uh, username is Heron underscore Stone, H-E-R-O-N underscore Stone. And my email is Heron at gendo.net. And please enjoy my website. I think there's some interesting stuff you might find uh, uh, enjoyable at gendo.net. My art gallery is there, and you can buy my art. I sell them for a dollar a square inch. I can make them really big or really small to fit your budget. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's great. And um, in addition to that, uh, I know you have a lot of great conversations on TeamSpeak, you know, so people could join you in the Zeitgeist Movement with TeamSpeak channel. Ah, yeah, that's right. And I've got, yeah, I've got... 638 right now published podcasts. Uh, if you go to iTunes and search for Gendo, a way of language, uh, they're all there. And number 358 is the five stupidities thing. And I'm on TeamSpeak uh, every day except Tuesday and Thursday uh, from 3 to 5 California time. On Sundays, we're reading Science and Sanity at noon Pacific time. Um, I think that covers just about everything. That's good, because we're almost out of time. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in tonight. You know, Be sure to check out Heron's podcast. Um, I'm still working on a lot of shows. Uh, please consider a donation to V-Radio. You can do that at my website, v-radio.org. Um, and once again, feel free to check out the archives of other great shows like this one, documentary filmmakers interviewed, activists interviewed, uh, politicians interviewed, scientists interviewed, and also just a lot of great blog uh, shows where we discuss a blog or a, you know maybe you know, an article that's pertinent to things that are going on in the world. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. I'll give us some words from Jock Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jock Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.